I'm Conor McReynolds and welcome to The Dinner Party. In this podcast, I ask guests to describe their dream dinner parties. The venue, the menu and the guest list. Who are their guests and why are they invited? That's what we're here to find out. This week, I am thrilled to be joined by a voice actor and comedian who I've been lucky enough to perform with at Jericho Comedy on a few occasions. She's such a great performer, using her acting skills and sharp writing to tell great stories and play hilarious characters in her stand-up. Liz Guterbach is my guest on The Dinner Party this week. Liz has put together a cracking group of guests, so I really can't wait to chat to her all about who they are and why they're invited. So without delay, here is the brilliant Liz Guterbach. Liz Guterbach, hello, and thank you so much for joining me on The Dinner Party. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for having me, Connor. I'm so excited, as usual. I'm so thrilled that you're here. Uh, We we had the pleasure of gigging together very recently, uh, just before lockdown two. Yes. Uh, And yeah, it was was such a pleasure to see you performing again after what had been a while. I mean, how has 2020 been for you? You know, it's been, I think, as everybody would probably say, very interesting. It has had (laughs) sort of all things in this very intense, intense way. I feel like I've had a lot of opportunity to reflect, shall we say, Mm. Uh, opportunity to kind of rejig some things. Um, You know, I, I think I err on the side of how how can I grow from this rather, you know, and again, it's really easy to say that now that I'm through the first part of it, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, you know, it's been challenging. It's some parts of it, some parts of it have been fun. Some parts of it have been awful and some have been wonderful. So yeah, it's kind of been all things. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But coming back, coming back to performing in sort of a new context, um, you know, and some of the first shows that that I did after the first lockdown just kind of reaffirmed, oh God, I just love this. And I love yeah. I, I love being um people were so excited to be at the show, just to physically be there. Yeah. And there was something really yeah. electric about that. And I was like, Yeah, you know, this is a really cool way to to spend uh my time and to kind of uh yeah. Yeah, to really enjoy it's- it. It's sometimes kind of, you know, seen as a bit of a cool attitude to be cynical or dismissive or something. And the the sense of relief that everybody had getting back to performing, it was really refreshing yeah. for absolutely no cynicism. Like everyone was just so delighted. There was no one there who seemed like they were too cool yeah. to be at a gig, you know, like yeah, everyone was just excited right. and delighted. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was really special. And hopefully we get that feeling again in December when gigs come back. Who knows? No, I know. And I think um, it's interesting going back into the into the second lockdown. I think obviously there was the usual anxiety around it, but that seemed to pass much more quickly just because we've done it once. And uh, I also read that I read an article that was like nine ways that this one is different. And I was like, okay, I feel feel good about that. But being able to go outside as much as we want, I think key for me is making sure I go outside before the sun goes down. Um, Yes. Yeah. The opposite of a vampire, basically. So. (laughs) 
I like that. That's how I'm going to think about you from now on. Oh, oh, yeah, Liz, the opposite of a vampire. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Liz, I just wanted to, to ask you about your, your wonderful comedy. I mean, I've had the pleasure of gigging with you a lot at Jericho Comedy. We love having you along to Jericho. You're such a hit with our audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, going right back to when you first decided to start comedy, what was it that made you want to take that leap? Oh, gosh. Well, um, I think I had uh, so I I moved to the UK to go to drama school and I was out of drama school and, uh, you know, working various jobs that are not at all related to the arts, you know, um, Mm. office jobs Mm -hmm. and things like that. That's that's just and I understood that that was what was going to happen um after after school. But, you know, I kept being told you need to be writing and producing and doing things on your own in order to get yourself out there. And I was mm. just like, well, how, you know, how am I going to do that for free? And, you mm. know, yeah, like how, how am I going to be able to do that? And I, I kept going to one of my very good friends. Um, she was starting to do, her name is Leanne Davis. She's an amazing comedy writer and amazing actor. And we sort of met on some workshops and things. And she invited me along to her comedy gigs. And I just, I was really, I just kept going. I kept following her to all her gigs. Right. Yeah. And at a certain point, she was like, Liz, you just need to do this. You just need to start. <laughs> you just need to do comedy. And I was like, please, anything but stand up comedy. I couldn't think of anything scarier because it is the ultimate, it's you on stage. And to, yeah. like, you have to make people laugh. Oh, gosh, that's terrifying. Um, especially if your family tells you that you're not the funny one, like all the time. Um, Oh no. I mean, not in a mean way. It's like, I'm the little sister and they, the way that they would tease me would be like, you know, yeah, uh, I I don't remember (laughs) remember (laughs) saying or doing anything funny. And I'm like, you guys. And then they would all laugh and I'm like, okay, well, that's my shtick. (laughs) Miserable little sister. But, uh, yeah, you know, it was a, it was kind of a slow a, a slow burn like I'd always I started as a <laughs> in a very serious like I started as a um you know wanting to be an opera singer when I was a kid and and oh, tra- wow. training training and singing and and all that stuff and everything about it is very serious um yeah. and there's something the discipline of being a stand-up comedian you do have to have discipline you do have to have you know, you, you learn the language of comedy and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing is, is that instead of uh, singing, <laughs> you get to and and having people just applaud <laughs> once, you get to make people laugh the whole time. Um, yeah, it's just more accessible. <laughs> it's you know, yeah, and and it's really fun. So it's been it's it's been a long old journey. I feel like I have you know, I've uh, one of the best things about comedy as well is there's always something more to learn always a new direction to go and um and every audience is different and i love being in a room with folks and reading reading the room and figuring out "Hmm, what's gonna make you guys tick i love that yeah it's it's just like an ongoing mystery or something and even the more you do it you you still don't crack like a formula that allows you to to do well at every single gig yeah. and there is always that kind of lottery element which 
uh, is sort of equal parts uh, intoxicating and terrifying. Because, oh, like, you know, you can do the same material in different rooms yep. and whatever the the makeup of the room is or what's gone before you, so many factors can influence how you're perceived in yeah. the room. Yeah, the mood, the day, the time of night, you know, what the host has done, all that stuff. I think some of it... Um, some of it kind of falls away. I like what I love is thinking, you know, before I go on, um, if there's some element in the room that is like negative or, or, um, you know, somebody, there's a rowdy audience member, or there's something that's gone on that kind of is making mm-hmm. people on edge. I just sort of think, okay, how can I change this energy? And it's not like, a you can't force any of these things, but it's being able to be like, what would they, you know, what would sort of lift things back up? I love, mm. I, I love thinking about that. Whether it's achieved is a different thing. Um, <laughs> believe me, I have walked on stage and I'm like, hi, how are you? And everyone's like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> you are so happy and so positive when you come on stage. I can't imagine how crushing it must be if that's not immediately reciprocated. Oh, it can be really off-putting, though. You know, because I think there's something, It's there have been times, I think, especially when I was initially sort of delving further into that energy where um, mm. it didn't come naturally. Like, I listened to sets when I first started, and I was pretty serious matter of fact and almost verging on like trying to be um uh what's the word i don't know misanthropic i guess and it just mm. like there was a sort of lack of authenticity there and then when i started to be like oh what if i was just a little bit more like hey how you doing i'm you know just owning a little bit more of that california positivity i guess yeah. um it it was really scary and it wasn't always it i think some people thought well she's faking it she's putting it on and in fact one of my fellow comedians when i first started changing the act a little bit uh was like oh this new character this new positive character is really interesting <laughs> i was like Char- character <laughs> oh oh is that it and um, but the thing is is like the audience will be able to tell if it's authentic or not you know, yeah. and, and, and that's the, the audience. Yeah, they know people know when you're putting it on. So it's been really interesting in those moments when, you know, maybe I don't always feel what happens if I don't feel like going on stage or, and, and that's mm-hmm. kind of the craft around it. I guess some of the actors craft comes in, in that way. It's like people, yeah. do, people do voice exercises or people do acting exercises um, when they're not performing so that when they have to perform whatever else is going on in your life or at that time falls away and you can just do it and it's yeah, just authentic yeah. so there's something really interesting there and stand-up is very much about you have to show up as you are with the circumstances that are and you know do the material that you're doing and sometimes it's it really pops and other times it doesn't but you keep coming back to take that risk I love it yeah, it's so interesting to hear you talking about how your, um, I guess, persona and your your outlook and the mood of your stand up changed in terms of like the topics you were drawn to and the material that you wrote about in those early parts of your, your kind of comedy career. Mm-hmm. How much has that changed since you've gotten to know 
yourself a bit better, I guess, and feel more settled in comedy and as a writer? Like, how how's that side of things developed? Yeah, I think um, I think at first I really didn't like the fact that I you know, anytime I step on stage, the first thing that people are going to hear is the accent. The first thing that I'm going to be mm-hmm. um, seen as is is as an American. And I think there was part of me that's also, you know, I hadn't been here as long. And when you move to a new country, even if you know that country well, like I have English family and I've been here quite a bit, there is that cultural thing where it's like, well, I don't want to be perceived as different. I don't want to, mm. I don't want that to be the thing. So I would do lots of stuff. I would try to talk about anything except that, yeah. except my Americanness. And and I would stray away from making political jokes and those kinds of things because I thought, well, I don't want to talk about that. Um, And then there came... I, like random things would happen in conversation. This was maybe before I had started stand up. Random things would come up in conversation, and I would just make people laugh with a you know some quip about being American or something like that. And then it started it sort of started in my comedy. There was a moment where I was like, "Well, just address it. Make that the thing that you address up front. Talk about your accent. Talk about the fact that you sound like a Kardashian. (laughs) Make those dumb jokes. And in some ways, people are like, well, the obvious joke is the hack joke. But if it works, it works. And there was something where if I launch in and say up front, hey, this is who I am. This is how I sound. This is what I look like. Then that leads the way for me to talk about literally anything. But for me, I think what's started to solidify is I want to make people laugh using weird voices, characters, act outs, Mm. things like that, where, you know, if I say something in my own voice, it might not be as funny. But if I say it in this character's voice, um, you know, I'm thinking sort of like I watch people like Maria Bamford and I watch people who mm-hmm. use, and, and Eddie Izzard and people who use act outs and voices to great effect. And that, I think, is what I've been inspired by and the direction that I'm going in into. Like I've always done funny, dumb or well, I should say I've always done voices that are not my own for as long as mm-hmm. I can remember. My brother and I just did weird voices with each other, um, you know, and watch a lot of the Simpsons and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so it's a thrill for me to see how now I can fit those random weird voices and characters into my standup. And that's sort of the direction I see me going in is that not an, not an impressionist, but, Mm. you know, someone who will get the laugh and make you surprised by the, the characters, I guess, that show up. Um, yeah. yeah, that sounds so interesting. I see that in in your stand up and your material that I've seen recently, and obviously it plays into a whole other huge part of your creativity, which is uh, kind of vocal performing and voice acting and voice mm-hmm. narration and stuff. How did you find yourself doing that, or how was, did that kind of become your chosen uh, kind of career path? Well, it's funny because I always wanted to be a professional. Uh, vocalist and uh, it started out with music but Mm. I um, you know and I have a very musical family 
Um, nobody in my family are, they aren't professional performers. They don't make their living off of being performers, but Mm -hmm. music on my dad's side, you know, um, part of German heritage is so heavily, you know, music and every city has its own choir and that kind of thing. So, Mm -hmm. so I thought I was always interested in music and that kind of thing. But when I tried to have a professional career, my voice was like, um, there were just some things that were, um, it's like having a vocal career is so hard, especially in opera and classical music. Um, Mm -hmm. and my voice just kind of, I want to say crapped out on me, but that's, you know, it, I, I just had a lot of vocal issues. And then I, Mm -hmm. I kept being told in, um, opera competitions and things like that. Well, the, the, the voice is nice, but it has some issues, but the acting, you know, the acting is great. And I was like, oh, well maybe I'll just skip the music part and do the acting. (laughs) But when I moved here to, to go to drama school, um, and I, I did my MA for a year and then one of the, actually this, this ties in with uh, one of my guests today. Basically, I worked an office job in Los Angeles um, before I moved here, and uh, it was in an accounting firm. And I, uh, one of the accountants, took me to lunch one day, and you know, we just had a bit of a friendship. And he was he was an older guy and had you know just a, a lovely man who was a lot like a second dad. And um, mm-hmm. his name is Barry Goldstein. And basically, we went to lunch together, and uh, a guy named Maurice Lamarche happened to be sitting at the counter. And Barry knew um, knew Maurice, and we ended up all having lunch together. And Maurice looked at me, and you know, he'd been listening a bit to our conversation. And he said, "You know, you have a you have a really nice voice. You should think about going into voiceover." And we'll discover later who you know all about Maurice and stuff. But that really that really struck me because I've always loved animation and all that stuff. And then when I moved here after drama school, you know, I was looking for agents and doing all the normal stuff that people do after they get out of drama school. But I really wanted to plug my passion into something and knew had been told, you know, voiceover would be a good direction for you. And I just, I, I, I worked hard to raise the money to get a reel together and to take classes on mic technique and, you know, like kind of put myself through school in my own yeah. way yeah, to, yeah. because I have a passion for, for voice and doing funny voices and dumb stuff with my brother and wanting to be in animated shows like Daria and that kind of stuff. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, I sent, did the legwork and sent out my my reels and things to to agents but it took about two years until somebody got back to me Uh, and then someone uh, a a wonderful agency called um, Soho Voices took a chance on me and you know it all started out quite slowly but that first job at the time I was working at catering I was doing catering and working in an office and and doing wow. things and I got this this corporate job that I can't I, I can't even remember what the what the product was but it was like an internal corporate job and I got to go into the studio and spend an hour in there at the microphone <laughs> and honestly it's it was one of the best things you know that moment when you pinch yourself you're like wow this is really cool and yeah you know, it was like you know I would get a voiceover job maybe twice a year and then the next year it was maybe four times. And then the next year it was just slowly and steadily um, that. But, it, you know, if someone took a chance on me 
And I happen to be, because I have an American accent in the UK, that's yeah. sort of like the thing that's like that, that uniqueness, I guess. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So th- I think that's a huge, that there, that that's a huge, um, I don't, I, I, I'm reluctant to say advantage, but it's just something that immediately sets, sets me apart, which I think is why it's been maybe easier in some ways for me to do it here than it would have been in the U.S. where everybody has this accent. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, I get the same thing over here. Like yeah. people are just interested in the, the sort of the difference, like, mm-hmm. you know, not to, to single you out or anything, but just they're, they're drawn to a different kind of accent that they normally hear yeah and they comment on it so much and you're just like wow i mean nobody in ireland gives a damn how i sound yeah, nope, because nope. we all sound like this <laughs> but i just, yeah i just love I, I i love um that's one of the most exciting things about moving here too is um learning the variety of accents in the United Kingdom and I know that sounds <laughs> that sounds so probably sounds basic to people who grew up no not at all not at all the differences between each region and it's so it's so exciting and also is like so funny anytime I hear an American including myself doing an uh, either an English accent any you know any UK based accent I'm like it's, is is that is that how it's is that how they sound is that they <laughs> <laughs> I'm always interested when people say like I can do the English accent or the American accent or the Irish accent you're like the yeah. English or the American it's like uh, people from you know Queens in New York sound very different to people in Texas people in hmm. Belfast sound very different to people in Dublin yeah um, I think what's so fascinating to me as well is that you can have so many different regional accents in such a a, a rel- I say relative to the United States such a small hmm. a small um portion of the world yeah in the states I mean there is a general American accent, I suppose. Um, like when I lived in California, people would ask me if I was from New York, I think because I talk quickly. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's like there are just so many different accents, even from like the c- central London out to Essex. Like, yeah, it's just mm. it's amazing. The variety. Um yeah. Yeah. I mean, even like I even find it in Ireland. I mean, Northern Ireland is is tiny. It's like mm. uh, two million people, I think, live in Northern Ireland, something wow. like that. Um, and yet across even that country, like I had a friend at school who lived six miles up the road from me, but it was a very rural area. Yeah. And I used to effectively have to be his translator sometimes to our friends at school because he would speak in such a broad accent. Oh people would be like, we have no idea what you just said. <laughs> Um, <laughs> all, all I can say is thank God you were there to be the bridge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so funny because he's since uh, moved to England and he studied at Durham and then did a PhD at Cambridge. Wow. And his accent out of necessity has changed so much. It's it's wow. very, very funny it's to so hear the kind of broad sort of culture Northern Irish accent. 
and then mixed up with a kind of bit of chars and bars and it's really funny. I mean, accents and the way that, so drama schools used to train regional accents out of actors and um, uh, drama schools in this country and likely Mm. in the States, but I think especially in this country. Um, And my grandma, my English grandmother, who um, after the Second World War then moved to to California to be with my my grandpa, my American grandpa. But Mm -hmm. um, she had, you know, the classical received pronunciation, but her family are all from Leicester. And she, when she was in, when she moved to California, everybody would, um, my mom always says this, that my grandmother would constantly be asked to be everybody's uh, receptionist because they're like, oh, (laughs) we talk all day. But it's so interesting that the training, um, say, let's say when Judy Dench was at Central School of Speech and Drama, Mm. um, or even Don French and Jennifer Saunders, when they were there, they would be trained to speak only in the received the queen's english the received yeah and that's what sort of made you an actor whereas in the latter part of um i'm not exactly sure maybe in the 80s something really changed where it was like no the regional accents and especially now they will not change your regional accent like you need to be able to do um say i mean what even is received pronunciation but estuary english i guess yeah do that accent but your your regional accent is is you and is what makes you unique and that it's just a really interesting change it's absolutely fascinating i i still think back uh to like when i was 17 i'd never been to england before and i was applying for drama schools i didn't get into any of them uh, and I think part of it might just be because I wasn't as good an actor as I thought I was. But part of it, I think, was that uh, I had no idea that people in England would find an Irish accent interesting. Oh. So I came over and the two audition pieces I did were both in American accents. Oh, I did wow. Willie Loman for oh, some mad reason. I love you. And, you were 17. And s- 17 years oh. old. And I thought, oh, yeah, Willie Loman will be my best bet. <laughs> And Stanley Kowalski from Streetcar Named Desire. And it was just because I was studying those texts at school in English class. And I was like, oh, yeah, they're good. Like, they're good Connor? soliloquies. It was mad. But it's amazing. Think about those. <laughs> <laughs> they oh. must have thought, what the hell is he doing? He's a 17-year-old kid from Ireland. Ireland has such a rich literary and theatrical history. I could have chosen any number of brilliant Irish plays. And instead, I was like, nope, 20th century American, baby. That's how I'm going to get to drama school. (laughs) Oh, man. But you know what? I I just I so I so feel you on that, because I think in my mind, I'm like, you must be a serious actor. You must. Yes. (laughs) And you chose two of the most tragic and (laughs) Stanley like yeah Connor you had some balls on you that's amazing oh man it was just it was pure ignorance oh I I mean I have seen you do that that would have been so great I I wish you'd seen it too so we could have both had a laugh at it I should say I mean 
I did. I played Stanley for my A-level piece, and I don't like to brag, but I did get full marks for my acting A-level as Stanley Kowalski. So. I'm so glad. I love that. Also, you were testing your range, man, and you did it. I was testing my range. I but yeah, I, I do wonder would I have ended up at drama school if anyone had said to me, no, if you go over to England, for God's sake, do something in your Irish accent, they will find that interesting. Interesting. And I think in application notes and things like that, they now do say, you know, if if possible, do something close to your age and in your own mm. accent. Because, But also that's an interesting shift in, you know, in, in, in acting in general across, you know, kind of across the ocean. And, you know, um, nobody had ever seen anybody do something like Marlon Brando did. Uh, when he mm. put Stanley Kowalski on the stage because he wasn't people were used to say like Laurence Olivier's performances and very affected and all of that but the the real shift in the the realness the rawness the playing close to who you are um mm. Ilya Kazan and and um that sort of genre of theater really brought mm-hmm. that you know be yourself and and be more yeah you know just sort of um heighten what you already have kind of yeah um but it it isn't it so interesting how when we're teenagers but even now and even me telling my story about uh um you know how i how i was in stand-up i wanted to deny all the things that i actually was or it's like yeah well i don't want to be perceived as this american person who lives in england even though that's exactly what it is Yeah. Or I don't want to be the it's, 17 year old kid from Ireland, even though that's exactly what you are. It's that absolutely yourself that we're like, no, no, anything but that. It's such a fascinating thing, isn't it? That uh, you mentioned the word earlier, and it's a, a whole concept that I've just become more and more fascinated by recently when talking to wonderful creative people like you on these podcasts. Uh, you mentioned the word authenticity, mm. and, and I, I think it is one of just the most important things in any kind of performance or creative skill. Yeah. And you you lack the, I guess, maturity and self-awareness when you're that bit younger mm. to understand what authentic is. And you're so influenced by what you have seen that you want to emulate that. Like the first time I ever tried stand-up, um, I'd, I'd watched so much Dylan Moran and I just thought, oh my God, that's exactly what I want to do. Yeah. And I, like you, tried to be so serious and, and deadpan and uh, kind of bemused and grumpy on stage. And that's just also not who well, I am either. The opposite of who you are. Um, yeah. And it's it's so interesting that it takes us to get a bit more experience, life experience, and like even off stage, away from everything, just a bit of context, maturity to know who we are, where we are in our lives, to kind of value that that authenticity. And yeah, it's um and interestingly with uh with lockdown, um I felt like there was almost a forced reckon- reckoning of some of that stuff. Mm, yeah. A, a drilling down into what are the parts of my life that I, you know, that I really cherish and what are the parts that I can maybe let go of or what can I loosen the death grip on but most importantly you know and not I guess it's important to distinguish this from like an egoic self-centered uh looking at oneself and taking stock Mm -hmm. and a a more like I guess global open um 
who am I? What do I want? What can I offer? Kind of, kind of looking inward, I guess. Um, mm. that's kind of what happened to me in the in in the first lockdown, and I also re- recognize very well that that's that's uh, a privilege in in lots of ways because uh, also as someone who was already freelance, I was sort of set up for the uncertainty of what happened. Yeah, yeah. And it was more like, well, how do I take on more uncertainty? And I had in some ways was already, I guess, prepared to be working at home and things like that. But it's that embracing of the having the maturity or the, I don't know, the experience, I guess, to to be like, oh, what do I really value? And to really honestly answer that question um, mm-hmm. and and be okay with the answer, I think, where it's like, oh, I should embrace these parts of myself, even though in the past I may have denied them or whatever. Um, yeah. yeah. I think it's like you were saying earlier, you're, uh, how you feel excited and continually excited by the the new challenges and the new uh, curveballs sometimes that comedy can throw you. And I, th- I think this is maybe one of them that as we go on and on, you know, with, with doing more stand up or writing more or finding our voice that bit more, the exciting thing then becomes, okay, well, I've, I've got all this stuff that I've written on this thing, but actually that's not the stuff that I'm still really interested in talking about. And if I'm being honest with myself, I really want to talk more about this kind of thing. Yeah. And so it's finding a new way to present yourself and your thoughts on stage and in your writing. Mm. And it's fun. I mean, it's a scary challenge, but it's fun as well. It is. I think it's like there's an impatience to it as well, where it's like, well, I just want to make my mark and I want to be that developed stand up already. And um, that's definitely my dad's voice. But I think, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, being, um, being all right with seeing it unfold. I think that's something that I've had to get really uh, okay with being like, well, mm. is it ever a finished product? So if I, like, am I always in development and partially yes, but also there will be those things that I guess solidify. It's like now I know that I'm going to be talking about being Amer- American in the UK and the nuance comes from, well, how am I doing that? And then how does that mm. lead to being able to talk about lots of other things, stupid things, serious things, you know, whatever. I tend to stay away from politics, but I like to think that underneath it all, there's something sort of vaguely like poking fun at some of the, I guess, the powers that be without saying their names, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. You can judge yourself, listener, who we might want to make fun of. Talking about. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Liz, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah bill your time's coming we're gonna make so much fun of you you made some funny cds yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much liz that i want to talk to you about uh this afternoon and, mm. and none more so really than your dream dinner party which is why we're here uh, I'm so excited. You've put together such a great range of guests. <laughs> uh, before we get into kind of finding out the who and the, the menu and all the rest of it, uh, just to sort of give us a, a little flavor of what a, a Liz Guterbock dinner party is like, what what do you think would be the tone of your dream dinner party with the people that you've got and where you're planning to do it? Is it going to be... Uh, a really lively, boozy, kind of raucous affair? Is it going to be more of a 
stimulating conversation long into the night kind of thing. So it's it's so to get the tone of this thing as I'm as I'm looking at my my guest list, I'm thinking it's going to be a a, a long yes boozy but sort of that like classy boozy we have a lot of booze but over a long period of time kind <laughs> yeah. of you know leisurely but fun lively conversation <laughs> a very warm i think i hope <laughs> a warm atmosphere <laughs> uh, jovial but not necessarily raucous although there's one person who might get raucous <laughs> um, yeah so, so i think uh, uh we're thinking like a full table setting and and courses and and things like that maybe a candelabra um oh yeah yeah i've gone yeah i i even the word sumptuous i think for some of these people the word sumptuous is necessary because i'm not sure they'd be satisfied with anything else (laughs) (laughs) i love that that it's on their kind of cultural and emotional rider that the evening must be sumptuous yeah yeah i think that is brilliant (laughs) (laughs) i definitely see that as well in the group of people that you put together yeah nothing less than sumptuous will suffice Uh, (laughs) well liz where would this sumptuous evening be happening if you could do it anywhere in the world if you could take over any place where would it be oh this is gonna be such a juxtaposition of an answer. I would host it, I would host it at Dollywood. <gasps> oh, God, yes. That is brilliant. I've never been to Dollywood. Have you been before? I've never been to Dollywood, and it is my life's dream that I don't really admit to anybody, but it is my life's dream to go to Dollywood um, because I, you know, gosh, it, it's a whole land of Dolly Parton. She's made it. And oh. and it has this, like, I'm not sure if any listeners will be um, familiar with it, but there's a place called the Madonna Inn that's outside a, a, a place called um, San Luis Obispo in um in California. And Mm -hmm. it's just, they have a room with, you know, the caveman room and the velvet Elvis room and these very kind of tacky Americana, I guess, but there is a sumptuousness to it. And I know that Dolly and Dollywood is done in such a specific way that honors where she came from, but it's also Mm -hmm. going to be very nice and homey and also kind of like, slightly it'll have sequins but it will be sometimes tasteful and sometimes really not tasteful but in <laughs> like this yeah it, I, I feel like a sumptuous meal could be had at dollywood <laughs> oh, absolutely um just i mean the excitement everyone would feel just going through the gates knowing you're going into dollywood I think again, be... i think some people in this group would be really excited about it i think other people i think so <laughs> please no (laughs) (laughs) yeah you might need to tell them a little white lie about where they're going for Mm. dinner perhaps Mm -hmm. Uh, well that is I mean what a great setting for a dinner party Uh, and now we need to find out about your guests your your first guest 
is a French-born American chef, author, TV personality and artist. He was a close friend of Julia Child and had an Emmy award-winning TV show with her. You're inviting Jacques Pépin to your dinner party. Yes, I am. Um, he is such a, a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful man. Um, his book. So uh, a friend of mine knows that I uh, adore Jacques Pepin. And I should say that um, one of the reasons I was introduced to him, I mean, I, I don't know him personally, but I was introduced <laughs> to Jacques on TV on his PBS show. Um, it's a uh, Julia and Jacques cooking at home and it's Julia Child and Jacques Mm -hmm. cooking and it's one of the most relaxing and wonderful shows in the whole world and also doing a Julia Child impression is one of the (laughs) most fun activities to do so if nobody haven't tried it please try it Um, (laughs) but you know Jacques and and Julia I, I think I chose Jacques Partly because the recipes in his book that my friend gave me, it's called The Apprentice, My Life in the Kitchen. The mm. recipes in his book uh, vary all the way from, you know, really home home cooked, made by his mother, all the way to cooking for the, the, um, the highest dignitaries in France. Um, yeah. He... And it's such a, a perfect sort of explanation of Jacques Pepin as well and his history, because he started with French classical cooking and, mm-hmm. you know, learned all this, the incredible chef skills and, and became a very well-renowned, very well-respected chef in France. And then went to America and, like Julia Child, kind of revolutionized the way Americans think about food so that simplicity you know, freshness and simplicity of food can be quick and easy, um, but also elegant and, you know, yeah, kind of walk that line between mm. everyday and sumptuous, I guess. Yeah. yeah. he um, He's not someone who I knew a huge amount about, but I obviously read up about him, watched a couple of his videos, mm. uh, and he's got a very nice voice, like a very relaxed manner in the kitchen, and, and I, I can love- definitely see why he'd be a nice person to spend time with. Oh, he just seems so, so lovely. And when um, there's a, I, I'm a little reluctant to do, but he has this very soft spoken, lovely way about him, a, a lovely French accent and a little bit of a lisp, which mm-hmm. I find so comforting. And when he would be with Julia Child, who's a little bit more boisterous, <laughs> their position was so nice and you know julia always being like well we need to add a little bit of butter and do this <laughs> and put, uh, some white wine and we'll put some white wine in the chicken and then have some for us and you know <laughs> jack would be, be over there just you know well julia we shall do this and uh it'll be very nice yeah, I'm I'm doing the voices. Am I allowed to do the voices? I don't know. I but, love that you're doing the voices. But he's <laughs> he's so peaceful and I feel like he'd be a very calming uh presence at the table. Now he is he is in his his later later life now. Yes. But as far as I understand, uh still incredibly dynamic and lovely. He just seems like a lovely guy. Um He does. He does. And I think one of the best things anyone can do is to chat to well i guess more generally speaking to chat to anybody 
about their passion. Like mm-hmm. it's it's why I love the conversations we have, particularly on this podcast, is because you speak to people about what they're really passionate about, and people just throw themselves into their conversation wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. And to have someone at a dinner party whose whole life is dedicated to passion for food and flavor mm. and texture and quality and all these wonderful things associated with food. I, I find talking to foodies about food just to be one of the best ways you can spend time. I mean, what would you want to talk to Jacques about if you've got him there at your dinner party? I think one of the things I would do is uh would be to thank him for all the comforting television that he gave me when I was a kid (laughs) you know it's just it's just lovely but also um I think I'd really want to talk to him about his time at um Howard Howard Johnson's I don't know uh so Howard Johnson's is this big uh chain of um hotels and restaurants or I should say Mm -hmm. motels and restaurants that used to be on American motorways and Mm -hmm. he went and became an executive chef and to try to get like the same food in each Howard Johnson's Mm -hmm. and I I mean is that what I would speak to him about I mean I think I think I just want him to tell me stories about you know stories of him in the kitchen it's like I know I've read his book but it would just be great to hear those things from his mouth and also to just ask him you know what does he eat every day now what you know, what are some mm. favorite things to eat? And um, what else would I ask him? I'd ask him about Julia Child for sure. Um, oh, yeah. Ask him about his time with Julia and, um, you know, what it's like for him to be, I guess, um, seeing he wrote he writes some things in his in, in the book about how, you know, the Food Network and all those things didn't exist, obviously. And he was at the forefront mm-hmm. creating that stuff. And I think I would ask him if he finds online uh, recipes as frustrating as we all do. <laughs> That's a great question to ask him. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, I don't know. I, I know there's this this trope that everybody is like, right, do I have to read your life story before I figure out how to make the chocolate chip cookies? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Six chapters on why these cookies are important to you before you actually realize there are only four ingredients. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, you know, obviously, the, I, I just I would be interested to hear his sort of take on how I guess how in, the Internet has maybe changed cooking and accessibility and mm. that kind of stuff, and sort of almost how having too much choice can maybe paralyze us from wanting to do anything in the kitchen. Yeah. The the book that you describe where mm-hmm. it's kind of a mix between sort of haute couture and kind of more homely, simple comfort recipes, mm-hmm. it sort of sounds like the perfect cookbook because it sounds like something that you could dip into for like an everyday recipe or if there was a special occasion and you wanted to make something nice and fancy, yeah. you could find something like that in there. Have you got a favorite Jacques Pépin recipe that you make? So... This is the thing. I've had this book on my shelf for for probably 10 years now, and I have never made anything out of it. Oh, wow. I know. It's crazy. And I think in some way, okay, so I remember watching one of Jacques Pepin's um, 
shows and this was when he was by himself I can't remember the name of the show when he it's just his cooking show but um he he um goes to slice an orange but he like uses this knife technique to kind of take the membrane out and he I'm not describing this very well at all but it's almost like I've watched him so much that I'm afraid to mess up his recipes (laughs) oh wow um, so so I don't have a favorite one that I make all the time and I just feel like <laughs> God, I really hope he doesn't hear this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure because education seems to be such a big part of his work as well. Yeah. Uh, his earlier cookbooks were kind of, they sort of revolutionized cookbooks as a whole industry with lots of photos to show you demonstrations of culinary methods and that kind of thing mm-hmm. so i'm sure that uh based on the fact i mean he and julia child uh also created the first master's degree in gastronomy in the world uh, so i'm sure his attitude would be give it a go that is exactly i'm sure he wouldn't that. want you to be kind of paralyzed by fear exactly. he says that in every in nearly every chapter <laughs> he's just like the the important thing is to try it and one of the most interesting things in this book is where he says you know the um how people overcomplicate things and and how how he what he realized in his time at howard johnson's was that training people to cook in a restaurant is incredibly different from training people to cook at the in in the home so Mm, you won't won't have to keep something warming you know the potatoes warming forever a big vat of potatoes warming forever if you're presenting a meal to your to your to your friends like there are certain aspects of cooking in the home that are much easier than in a chef's kitchen and how do you make a cookbook to reflect that so you know, that's where he was really revolutionary, I guess, is um, making the home cook feel feel exactly that at home. And Julia, yeah. Julia, similarly. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I I realize my my paralysis is um, I, I think he would be able to talk me out of it, let's just say. I think so. Well, hopefully he would do that at dinner. I feel bad. Um, I feel bad giving him a task. You know, I have to. <laughs> You're inviting him to dinner to cure you of one of your own hang-ups. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, let's not have the dinner party be a therapy session. (laughs) Let the man man enjoy his meal, for God's sake. (laughs) I love this. It sounds like what you've really put together is the plot of The Wizard of Oz, where all the characters there showed you that... The, the only missing ingredient was your own confidence in yourself oh, all along. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> That's so perfect. Especially given the rest of the guest list. I'm like, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. They could definitely teach you a few things. I mean, Jacques <laughs> Pépin, great first guest. <laughs> and your next guest's another absolute belter. She is an actor, comedian, talk show host, and author. She's one of a very few people to have ever egotted, which is, of course, to have won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony Award. She's loved for her roles in the Sister Act movies, Star Trek, amongst many other things. You're inviting Whoopi Goldberg. Yes. When did you become a Whoopi fan? Oh, man. You know, it's a mixture of things. Uh, I was a huge Star Trek fan. Um, oh. I- Next Generation. Thank you. 
Um, <laughs> next generation, and that's why I'm. Is that why I threw shade on Shatner earlier? Maybe I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, you know, so yes, on Star Trek, but I think Sister Act is probably foremost in my mind because that's what I watched the most as a kid. But also just going through. She's so funny in Ghost, which is obviously a very sad movie, but mm. she is the much needed comic relief and just she's just so excellent. So Sister Act is is, is probably how I fell in love. Now, Connor, I'm going to admit something to you right now. That's very okay. embarrassing. But I didn't Let's realize that that Sister Act is actually like a play the 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 title how clever i didn't realize how clever it was <laughs> because i didn't realize that a group like the supremes and martha and the vandellas and those types of uh groups are called often sister acts <gasps> or that there would be groups of sister singers they would be a sister act and then the title of the film is sister act and it's funny because I have nuns. just learned something. They're fun. It's funny because they're nuns. It works on levels. I mean, I always think of the the wonderful title to the sequel, "Back in the Habit." I, I mean, mean give w- me a- one of the greatest puns ever. It's great, but that movie, I just <laughs> love that movie. It had everything, you know, and music and choirs. And when I was in high school, I was in choirs, and choirs were cool at our school. Everybody so. Um, yeah choirs were super cool you were lucky at my school I was the only oh no sorry I was one of only two boys in the choir and it was not cool oh I'm so sorry but you know but I still I I watched Sister Act 2 and I was like oh man those kids are so cool in the choir I wish all the other kids at my school knew how cool this was I wish everyone (laughs) at school knew how cool you were because you played Stanley Kowalski okay (laughs) yeah Okay, Connor, you were cool. It's just I'm gonna post this to like a (laughs) group of everyone in my old school. It's like, see guys, I'm 33 now and I am cool. I love it. But yeah, I mean what what a woman and um that that movie I, I, I just I love. I watched it all the time. Now, controversially. Ooh. I prefer the first one to the second one. Um, oh, I'm I'm with you there. Okay, I am with you Good. there. But uh, but both very fine films. Yeah, and of course, rumors persist of a Sister Act three. How do you feel about that? <gasps> I didn't know that. This is oh, this is. New. I've heard rumors. Me, I've well, heard rumors. We don't the, know if it's true. What's the pun? Gonna but be? oh my goodness, what's it I gonna be? Do, I, I wish I could work quickly enough to discover it. But oh, I know. I wish I were an improviser because I'd have just come up with a killer I nun pun know. there. I know. That's a damn shame. Well, what I, what I, I might end up doing is saying something in four hours time and then editing it in here. <laughs> and everyone listening will be like, oh, that is amazing. The only thing I could think of was don't cross me, but that's just not. Oh, I like it. I don't know. I li- <laughs> I mean, even Whoopi's name is uh, is a kind of funny little joke in itself. Apparently, she got the stage name Whoopi because she used to get gassy before going on stage. Oh my and people God. told her she was like a Whoopi cushion. I didn't know that. I love So that. she just called herself Whoopi. She, I, I loved reading about Whoopi because she is such a fascinating person. Like when you read about 
aspects of her earlier life and stuff. She's just incredible. Mm. Before she was an actor and a comedian, uh, she was a bricklayer in Florida in what? the 70s. Oh, my God. And she also worked as a mortuary makeup artist. Wow. Like, that's mad. She's an honorary Harlem Globe trotter. <laughs> Uh, she was the first African-American woman to host the Oscars and the first woman to solo host the Oscars. I mean, she's just this incredible person. Like, what what qualities do you think she would be bringing to your dinner party as a guest? Well, I think she would be bringing um, quite a lot of fun, but also I would be so um, curious and uh, just, I guess, reverent to hear about how things have changed over the course of her career, but also, you know, currently everything going on with um, Black Lives Matter and and mm. just she's in such a prominent position in a country that is so um, in it, it's in turmoil, I think, in mm-hmm. quite a few good ways, asking tough questions and, and things. I think that's really good. But yeah, gosh, I think she just brings so much experience, a wealth of um, knowledge and just and fun. I feel like Whoopi is one of those people who is just she's she's everywhere. She's mm. you know, and her voice is in The Lion King. And seeing her play yeah. like evil character, but then also, yeah, evil evil in the or I guess a minion in um, yeah in The Lion King, and then also um I mean the color purple. And I also didn't realize uh, about her. I think there's solo stage shows as well. Um, yeah, that's apparently how um, how Steven Spielberg kind of discovered her for The Color Purple was through a Broadway show where she did uh, like a range of different characters and monologues. Yeah, and I mean, she's just just so incredible and looking yeah. at her journey from the stage and all the way through to all these other places. And she won a Grammy for her stand-up album. And, mm. you know, she's just... just impressive and uh seems like a really cool and interesting person um yeah yeah totally totally get that i mean she's so multi-talented um which i think we've talked a lot about authenticity and the importance of authenticity and i think she's someone who very clearly has such a strong sense of her own voice and who she is and her creativity she's so confident in that but also her her creativity is so multifaceted i mean she is this brilliant actor this wonderful stand-up she's an author tv presenter producer and so many other things as a kind of a fellow multi-talented creative person is there a, a particular aspect of her work or creativity that you'd you'd really want to delve into i think probably the 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 origins of the 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 stage show the solo stage show and how mm. you know, are there any links to maybe her artistic growth when she, you know, what she's doing now, how that, how it felt to have that as a jumping off point. Um, what I'm really always curious about asking about people's mindsets when these big things happen, you know, the sort of, I guess the trope in, in showbiz is <laughs> Steven Spielberg calls and mm-hmm. that actually happened to her. And I'm yeah. curious to find out, you know, uh, how what was going on in your new life at that time when that happened, um, and and what are some of the things that you've carried with you th- from then until now that have 
have stood you in good stead. Um, I, you know, I think she says very candidly in some of her writings, it's that, you know, she's, she's family oriented and she knows, um, who she can trust. And she just seems like a, a real powerhouse in her, in her personal life. So without getting too personal, I'd want to ask her, you know, what are the things that sort of ground her and, and have, have been the through line throughout her career? Yeah. Oh, they're great questions. Mm-hmm. I wonder how Whoopi does kind of unwind and relax yeah because i'm sure being Whoopi goldberg is probably quite exhausting she's I mean, can you imagine this so schedule? energetic and yeah just the schedule because I, i'm not i'm not yeah. sure if she's still presenting on the view i should have researched that but i think she is yeah, yeah i think she still i mean does. That, that the daytime television schedule is grueling and um how she finds time to do all the other stuff i don't know also i'd i maybe would want to ask her like would she ever consider doing a stand-up show again because Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe she has and I don't know about it, but but I would be. Yeah, I I think I might also ask her. Yeah. Do you miss stand up? Do you miss the circuit? What's that like? And I know it's obviously this circuit has changed so much since she was doing it. But I would also ask her, like, what was it like being being on on the circuit back in the 80s? And, you know, yeah, all those curious questions. I have a lot to ask. Yeah. <laughs> There'd be so much to ask Whoopi. It would be a very busy evening for even at your dinner party as well. But a, another terrific choice. Uh, <laughs> your third guest, uh, we heard a little bit about this person earlier. Mm. This person is like you, a comedian and a voice actor. He was the voice of the brain in Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain, as well as appearing in so, so many other shows like Futurama, SpongeBob SquarePants, Batman, the animated series, The Simpsons and Rick and Morty. You're inviting the wonderful Maurice LaMarche. Yes. He, a man with whom you've already dined. I have dined with him at a place <laughs> that I don't believe exists anymore. As I say, when I was in uh, Los Angeles working in my accounting job, I was not an accountant. I was the um, executive assistant to the CEO at the accounting firm. And the accountants very kindly would sometimes take me out to lunch uh, because they knew I couldn't go to the fancy places that they would go to. Mm. So this place was downstairs from our office called Sasabune. It's a a sushi restaurant. Again, I don't think it exists anymore, but it was fabulous. Anyway, Barry Goldstein took me down to have lunch and at the lunch counter was, uh, or at the sushi, the sushi bar was Maurice. And, um, just what a lovely man, really generous, um, had obviously done um, Pinky in the Brain. And it's <laughs> at that time. And what's so funny is when we would talk or when we were talking, um, he sort of was blasé. I think at that moment, I didn't really realize who he was. And mm. he just was so matter of fact about his career and about being a working actor and when he said oh you have a lovely voice you should think about going into voiceover it was said in in such a genuine way and I should say that in Los Angeles again we come back to authenticity it's not that people in LA aren't authentic there are obviously wonderful wonderful people there but there Mm -hmm. is a lot of hot air that gets passed around (laughs) that (laughs) that comment from Maurice just really stayed with me because it was offered in such a, just a lovely and generous way. Like he didn't, yeah. there was no prompting. He didn't have to say that 
kind of thing. And, and it was lovely. But I think when I went back and I researched, I was like, oh my God. And I told all my friends who are equally like voice actor <laughs> nerds that I'd met Maurice LaMarche and it was this big thing. It's like, he voices Morbo in Futurama and he did, he did <laughs> and, animators. and he also does an incredible Orson Welles. Um, Absolutely. Which, it's, it's really extraordinary. And it, the, if anybody has the chance, if the listeners have the chance, go and watch one of my favorite animated shows that got canceled, but it was uh, uh, the critic, and he does a parody of Orson Welles uh, doing an ad for Rosebud Frozen Peas. And it's just <laughs> it's just such a perfect send up. And again, I feel like in Maurice's impressions, obviously he's making fun of Orson. He's making fun of these people. But it is done in a generous and seemingly to me a loving way. Like I feel like you can make yes. fun of people in a loving way. And oh yeah, yeah. I think that's that's the key to. Yeah. Not that I know much about impressions. Mm. Uh, I did have the chance to speak to the wonderful Josh Berry on this podcast, oh, and an he is, I mean, such a master impressionist. And yeah, he he spoke a bit about it, about how it's just vital to sort of have a bit of love or respect for the person that you're you're impersonating because yeah. you can tell when. An impression is an affectionate one and when it's a kind of mean-spirited one mm, yeah you can sort of get the sense from the the tone or the way that they're that person is dealt with i guess yeah um and certainly yeah maurice lamarche clearly holds orson welles in, in great regard <laughs> and i mean um, just the versatility in maurice's voice is so incredible and how he sustains morbo in futurama i'll never know because you know like one of the things in voiceover is being able to sustain a voice over a long period of time is is mm. incredibly important. You know, I think about some of the Simpsons voices, the scratchiness of Selma and Marge, and yeah, um, you just think, gosh, how are you? How can you sustain that over twenty years, something like that? But yeah, it's insane. Oh, call is the it- cops! <laughs> <laughs> call the cops! Reese's voice is in danger. Um. <laughs> it's a crime how talented this yeah, man is yeah totally <laughs> I think my favourite character of his on Futurama is Ziff uh, is, is or is, uh, is no no it's it's Zap Brannigan's assistant what's he called again <laughs> is it Lur? no I'm going to have to google yeah. this this is terrible Because how, how could I ever forget Kiff of course Kiff I'm not oh, how could I forget that? Because Zap Brannigan has the that immortal exchange with Kiff. Kiff, have the boy lay off my shorts. <laughs> <laughs> the boy, sir. <laughs> you do it, Kiff. You lay off my shorts. <laughs> He's it's one so of my favorite funny. exchanges. Oh, God. I just, I would ask Maurice so many questions about <laughs> just nerdy, nerdy voiceover questions and like, you know, how did you find your voices? And and do you um, have a, a favorite performance or a character of his that you'd sort of want him to to perform for you at dinner? Would that well, be I cheeky? Mean, I, know, I I know it's the the Orson Welles one because that's the one that sticks in my mind as as uh, I mean the the rosebud the rosebud peas the rosebud frozen peas bit is just so joyous and so good, and I would want him to do it at the table. I'm gonna have I mean, to check this out. Oh, it's so funny. But also, I think 
Maurice kind of melds these two worlds. When I first moved to, or I should say when I was first out of drama school, it was actually in a play um, called It's All True. And it was all about Orson Welles. And I got to play, to, it was a dual role thing. And I got oh, wow. to play uh, Virginia Wells, who was married to Orson. I think it was his first wife. And then uh, Jean, oh gosh, I can't remember. Oh, I can't, it's terrible. I can't remember her last name, but she, is it Rosenthal? I think. She was the stage manager uh, at the um, the oh gosh I'm I'm blanking right now at the the as part of the federal theater project anyway mm-hmm. um, so so um, I was just I went into this sort of like obsession with Orson Welles and when I and that was one of the things the the rosebud frozen peas bit was one of the things that I came across in some of my research and I was like wow what a melding of worlds that <laughs> one of my favorite voice artists obviously does a, an impression of 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 Orson and you know the research bit of any role is so fun because you end up coming across all these random things where it's like these people lift up these older heroes of yours I guess and kind of shed new light on them in yeah. a funny way. I love that about comedy because you can just shed new light on things and have an appreciation for, for people. And then it makes them go back and maybe research about the person that they're in. in yeah, uh, absolutely. I've talked myself in circles, but it's just, <laughs> no, it's I, great. I'm thinking about meeting Maurice and just like, how many questions would I ask him? So many. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I need to concentrate on serving the food and making sure everyone is fed and watered instead of <laughs> bombarding them. But I feel I feel like Whoopi and Maurice would have quite a bit to talk about, and Jacques would just be a lovely, calming uh, presence as well. So yes, absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, Maurice is a superb addition uh, to the dinner party, and of course, you've mentioned your next guest <laughs> just then, someone who's obviously influenced the work of Maurice Lamarche. Uh, He's considered to be one of the finest filmmakers of all time. He was an actor, director, writer and producer whose first ever film was a little one called Citizen Kane. You're inviting <laughs> Orson Welles. Yes, I am. And what a guy. Now, I couldn't decide which time in Orson's life I would have invited him. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I was unsure. Um I was unsure whether it would be early Orson or later Orson. And it's, yeah, obviously there would be so many questions to ask of later Orson. But, you know, I think I would be particularly interested in talking to him when he was part of the Federal Theater Project. Because um, basically uh, FDR and at that time in America, it was the Great Depression and uh, mm-hmm. there was a lot of funding happening for the arts and Orson Welles um, was given a theater and actors were paid, you know, union wages and things to create shows. And, and um, there ended up being a lot of conflict about uh, money and those things. And Orson Welles being Orson Welles also always ran over budget and always ran over time. <laughs> so just really fascinating. And his politics were fascinating. You know, I think he was put on some of the Hollywood blacklists during the time of um, Mm, McCarthyism. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, although maybe he was a lifelong member of the International Brotherhood of Magicians, which (gasps) that is so cool. 
I'm the Society of American Magicians, apparently. I read now my source is Wikipedia, people, and I know that that's not a great <laughs> But I just thought that was a fascinating little fact. I'm not sure what you, you know, any tidbits that you found on, on Orson, Connor. I uh, I sort of came up, unfortunately, a little bit short. I think there was so much to read on Orson Welles and time, unfortunately, worked against me. But I did say, like, we think of him as this kind of very intense, serious man, takes mm-hmm. his craft ever so seriously. But he did uh, guest star in I Love Lucy. Did he? Uh, he did, yeah, with wow. Lucille Ball, uh, who has coincidentally also been a guest on The Dinner Party previously. Oh, wonderful. Um, but yes, well, that was my little very unorthodox or unorson Wells tidbit that I found was that he'd guest starred in I Love Lucy. But that's uh, what's so interesting about Orson because yes, he was this very serious actor, and um, I mean, I think the War of the Worlds recording is one of the most fascinating things ever. You know, yeah. I uh, to, just to say um, for anybody who might not know, when the World War of the Worlds was broadcast across America. Uh, quite a few people thought that it was real, that aliens were really taking over. Yes, the uh, whole, the structure of it was kind of interrupted by fake news broadcasts that people mistook mm -hmm. as real news broadcasts about a Martian invasion. Mm -hmm. And so I guess there's some sort of, I would want to ask Orson all about, you know, fake news and Mm. uh, censorship and... Uh, public funding for the arts and those kinds of things. I think he'd have a lot to say about that. Um, oh, yeah. you know, and he always defined himself as a a, a progressive, a political pro- progressive. Um, yeah. Interesting. I also found that he was really spo- out, outspoken on um, uh, on the evils of of racism and segregation at that time, which I think would have been a very difficult. In, in that time period in the the earlier yeah early- i mean even in the in the 1930s he put together a production of macbeth with an all-black cast in new york which i can That's- imagine at the time was probably relatively unheard of yeah yeah uh, so a really i mean someone who used his career well if you think about citizen kane and the sort of overarching message of the power of um of news media you know mm-hmm. it was um supposed to be i guess based on uh hearst william randolph hearst and the the just these big newspaper magnates and how much power they had and Mm. uh just he's yeah orson is a lot to take in and (laughs) when i was doing my research on him i have the most written down about him but probably there's just so much to talk about. Also, I think important to mention <laughs> that Orson, I guess, in the end or the later in his life, you know, people talk a lot about his weight. They do. Yeah. And, um, that is one thing I think that Maurice touches on a bit uh, in his in his send up in the Rosebud Frozen Peace thing. But what I some of the reading that I did as well is that Orson, when he was younger, was a you know very tall, very piercing-eyed kind of young man. Yeah. But I guess it was crash diets and things like barbiturates and and corsets and things like that that kept him thin in his early Hollywood career. And mm. that is very similar to literally anyone who was part of the studio system, like Joan Crawford and um, Judy Garland and all those people were on all these crazy diets and things and so their weight just 
yo-yoed and it, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all the industry pressure, I guess. And so later in his life, he just really, um, you know, food and booze and, and, and all those things he was able, I mean, he had access to them and I think it was, you know, it's to me, it smacks of difficulty of someone who (laughs) just wants, he's such a talented. I, I, I feel like it's really sad that sometimes that's how he becomes remembered, I guess, similar to Marlon Brando. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It's a really good comparison. Um, I mean, you you mentioned his kind of freakish talent, Uh, not that you used the word freakish, that was perhaps a a bit of an unnecessary word for me to use, but uh, a a kind of an astonishing multiplicity to his creativity, shall we say. I mean, as well as all the things that he was famous for, like earlier in his life, he was a poet and a cartoonist. And he designed theatre sets when travelling around Europe, uh, like famously at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, kind of Ireland's biggest mm. and best theatre. Um, and then later in his career, he even was like a bit of a Michael Palin type, made a travel series for the BBC. Yeah. Oh my God, um, I didn't know that. That's yeah, great. apparently he made like a six part series for the BBC where he went around different places in Europe and for a little kind of travel log series for BBC. Wow. I mean, those aspects of his creativity and experience that perhaps we aren't as familiar with would that be something that you would want to kind of hear more about from him I mean absolutely I think you can tell that he has just an overflowing um sometimes unstoppable creative brain just in the way that he ran his his productions everything I mean even if you look at the shots in Citizen Kane you think about how many moving parts there were to each one and what he did I think it'd be so fascinating to ask him you know what are the what are the smaller parts that that you're really fascinated by what were the Mm. most exciting um parts of travel what you know what is it like when you would land in a hotel room you know what would be the first thing that you would do because you obviously traveled (laughs) traveled the world um, but what are, what are the things, for better lack of a phrase, what are the things that really spark joy and excitement for you um, mm, that's so in the day to day? I guess the small things, because we think of Orson as this huge, he is a huge personality. Yes. But what I guess I would want to ask him about the, you know, what are the small things that you enjoy? What are the quiet times that you enjoy? Um, and... Yeah, some of the smaller projects, I guess, would fall into that. I did had no idea he was a cartoonist, but that's fascinating. And like, would he would he voice those cartoons if he got them made? Like, what you know, yeah. what would he like that kind of thing? I can't imagine anyone better suited to voice a cartoon oh, than Orson Welles. I uh, know, I mean, perhaps I mean, Maurice LaMarche, maybe. Possibly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what a voice! But Orson's voice is just so impressive, and you. It's the immediate gravitas, the depth of it. And yeah. if you listen to those recordings of, of War of the Worlds, it's like, no wonder people were scared. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, that's so yeah. true. How do you think uh, a kind of creative behemoth like Orson Welles would operate in today's kind of entertainment landscape? Like, I can't picture him making TikTok videos but what kind of work do you think he would be producing? And do you think he would still stand out now if he were a young man getting started now? Oh, goodness. I That's such a, such a good question. I would like to think. 
I'm afraid to say that I think he would be adaptable to today's today's um, means, but I think mm. he would really take it into his own hands. I think one of the most exciting things about Orson was that he found ways to do things his own way. And sometimes that got him into trouble. But another time, I mean, in terms of over budget and, and, and all that, even early in his career, but mm-hmm. I feel like that ambition that ambition would actually stand him in good stead. And he, you know, he would have opportunities to be on camera all the time, which he might actually really like. (laughs) But I feel like early Orson Welles would be less prone to to distraction. Like he'd have a real agenda about what he wanted to use it for. And I think Mm. he would probably also be really interested in um, maybe... I mean, I think he'd be fascinated, interested, horrified by the, the 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 politics part of it. But I think he would be able to to harness some of that in a really clever way in his art and in his maybe I think theater making. I think his focus would probably still be on live work and the importance of that. Because even mm-hmm. for me today, I think you know I love recorded media. I love TV, I love film and, you know, voiceover and and cartoons and all of that stuff. But there's something about live theater that all of us are collectively missing right now. And I feel like if Orson were alive now, he would find a way to, uh, especially if he were coming into today's world with his past experience, Mm -hmm. that he'd really be able to make something when theater is allowed to start up again. Because effectively, that's what he did when FDR you know, was developing the federal theater project and all that. And you think about all the things that came from that. I feel like Orson was a real innovator, so he might really thrive now too. Yeah, I guess with just expanding the tools at his disposal, Mm. trying to imagine what kind of work he might make now would be quite something. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, in addition, I guess, to the authenticity thing is the I'm constantly amazed by my friends, by my family, by human beings at large at how adaptable we are. Yeah. Um, yeah and there's absolutely. something something to be said for someone of Orson. I, well, I just like to think about the potential of anybody to do anything at the time that they're born and thinking they would still have that same capacity, whoever, whoever they are. That maybe is a bit Pollyannish, but yeah no no i agree human potential is human potential and i feel like all of us are capable of (laughs) yeah reaching it yeah oh that's a lovely sentiment (laughs) uh i'm sure orson would love to hear that as well um i mean what a what a terrific choice and you've got one more person coming to dinner uh we know where we're having it we're at dollywood Yep. So it would be a crime not to invite this person. She is, of course, a musical legend. She's worked with everyone from Elvis to Nora Jones to Willie Nelson to Johnny Cash. Her talent as a songwriter can't be overstated. And as a philanthropist and businesswoman, she's almost second to none. Your guest, your last guest, is the universally adored Dolly Parton. Yes. What a woman. Oh, what, what a an woman. Absolute <laughs> hero. Uh, she was uh, a choice. I had wonderful Issa Bonacera on the podcast a few weeks ago, and yeah. Issa chose Dolly as well. And yeah. uh, uh, she's just amazing. I mean, wh- when I read about Dolly, uh, I-, I guess something I didn't know, or maybe sort of had heard but didn't quite remember, whatever is is the 
the extent of her musical genius. I think. Mm. Like, when did you become aware of of sort of Dolly and her music? So I would say my true appreciation for Dolly probably didn't surface until and until I moved to the UK. There was something about the homesickness, I guess, that I felt when I moved here. And there was something really comforting about country music and about, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and anytime I would hear Dolly's voice, but there is a, I, I, I hope it's okay to mention another podcast. Oh, please but do. I was advised to listen to um, Dolly Parton's America. Uh, and it's a podcast by Jad Abumrad. And okay. he basically, you know, the depth of my love for Dolly was, was really um, brought to life by listening to that podcast. But even before that, I knew she was just this, this kind of constant. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think there's obviously like, I will always love you as a song. I think my mind was blown when I found out that she had written it because you think of Whitney Houston, but do you want your mind to be blown just a little bit more? Oh, you know it. In relation to I Will Always Love You, Dolly Parton did absolutely write that. She also wrote another song on the same day, Jolene. I mean, amazing. In one day, she but wrote that, those two songs. But that's the thing. She So Dolly Parton is a virtuoso and she has a real, and she'll talk about this. And, and I know some folks may take issue with the wording, but it is meant in a universal way. She has a gift from God and she used it. And she mm. says that she says that in the most Dolly way and the way even she talks about God, she's like that, you know, that's my relationship. It's, it's it has nothing to do with anybody else. It's just, I know. Mm-hmm. And part of that relationship is music. And mm-hmm. she is in so many ways, like a, like a channel. And from the time she was a little girl, she just was living, breathing, loving music. And she's so prolific in her writing and that's what's fascinating to me about her is that she's been doing it for so long that, you know, in that one day she wrote those two masterpieces, but it's, she was doing it every day before that as well. Yeah. You know, so it, yeah. It, it calls to mind. One of my teachers said once, um, you know, we remember Mozart and we remember Beethoven. Yes, because they wrote wonderful things, but they also wrote the most things. And yeah. like, yeah. It, that's not to diminish the things that these people wrote, but it's just to say it's the constant devotion, the practice, the love of the thing, or sometimes it's, the hate of the thing, the difficulty of the yeah. thing. Yeah, I think that to- that's such a good point. And I think also what that also represents when you're able to constantly produce such top quality work, it it's what sets apart you sort of one hit wonders from mm. your your kind of absolute legends, like people who are able to keep reinventing themselves or their music. You know, it's why with the greatest of respect to, to someone like Lou Bega, you know, Mambo mm-hmm. number no. five was great, mm-hmm. but he didn't make 15 hits of the same quality or 20 hits of the same quality. Here's Dolly Mambo. Parton is someone who's Mambo always... <laughs> Mamba number six was the the sadly missing or disappointing sequel, but, that's, but yeah, and- Dolly's able to just put out so much quality stuff that mm-hmm. that really sets her apart as as it's an really exceptional a- talent. 
And she's also a real uh, bridge builder. Uh, again, uh, the, the, this podcast is a real deep dive. And I didn't know this. You know, she's a film star. She's mm-hmm. she I mean, she's so funny in nine to five. And she wrote the soundtrack for that. She wrote she wrote the song nine to five on yeah. set. Like, oh, man. I mean, yeah, she's she's incredible. But she's also in terms of authenticity. She is exactly herself and she makes fun of herself. And, and one of the ways that she continues to to be in the world is always having an eye to what people are going to say about her in terms of, well, I'll be able to make fun of myself along with them. That's why she's had, and she says it herself, like, you know, that's part of the reason she's had a lot of longevity is she's like, yeah, yeah, I know who I am. And I'm, yeah. I'm going to make fun of myself and I'll, you know, the, some of the talk show hosts like Johnny Carson would come in with the, you know, the jokes about boob jobs and looking cheap, but she'd make sure she was doing it before. Um, she was always kind of one step ahead. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she's just talented and and joyful and wonderful and just a nice person. Um, that, and that can't be understated enough, like how much of her as a persona, as a, a kind of as a business or as a phenomenon, her personality is so key to it. She's so warm, mm. so genuinely caring uh, mm. and so considerate as well um like there was the news story recently uh where she renamed one of the attractions at dollywood her dixie stampede Mm -hmm. she removed the word dixie after she discovered that it sort of had potentially offensive connotations and like she just dropped it she just said uh what her exact words were as soon as you realize that something is a problem you should fix it don't be a dumbass i would never dream of hurting anybody on purpose like that is just brilliant in a time where we're all i think all of us can be so guilty of like doubling down digging our heels in refusing to listen to the other side but a kind of global fear seemingly of ever being seen as being wrong you always have to be right about everything like to have someone just say oh okay sorry that's a mistake i'll fix it like it's so amazing i think the 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 lifelong learning aspect as well like she's been doing what she does for so long mm-hmm. and she changes with the times as the time change it change as the time changes but it seems again to come from a place of yes absolute business acumen but also um sort of changing with the like an empathetic change with the rest of the world i guess there's so much mm-hmm. empathy in mm-hmm. her work and, and what she does and I just I admire that so much and it is that again that that sort of authentic joy like I remember now this story was told to me by a housemate who went to Glastonbury but basically Dolly Parton and James Blake were on on separate stages at the same time at Glastonbury mm-hmm. and at the James Blake show I guess uh, people were singing along and James asked them to stop because he said I'm the one who's singing <laughs> let me you know kind of let me sing he didn't probably say it in exactly that way but he basically told them to stop singing and so a lot of people left and went to dolly parton's show where she's like come on everybody sing along (laughs) (laughs) and you know she is a serious serious artist but she doesn't take herself her whole thing is like let's let's be serious about having fun but let's be serious about being emotional there's a song um 
again, it's mentioned in this podcast, um, and I had heard it before, but I'd never really heard it, heard it before, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, it's a uh, light of a clear blue morning. Oh, and I don't know that one. It's just, just breathtakingly beautiful and hopeful. It's, it's just all about, you know, I can see the light of a clear blue morning. It's, it's kind of like that thought of it's terrible right now but I can see the light in some way. And mm-hmm. I think it's really, there are tough times for all of us. And Dolly's one of those people, one of those artists who people turn to for that little bit of light. And I just admire it so much. So, yeah. yeah. And, and the fact that we'd be at Dollywood as well. Like, <laughs> I think I wanted to make Dolly comfortable, but I also hope that she would be able to stop working and come have dinner. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. Although I think you would be well within your rights to hope for a little private tour of Dollywood from Dolly as well. That would be so great. <laughs> that would be quite something. I mean, yeah. she she is just amazing and warm and kind and supremely talented. Mm. Of all those huge number of different things that you could talk to her about, it, it's an almost impossible question to answer, I know, but like, if there was only one thing that you had the chance to really delve into whether what do you think you would want that to be i think i would delve into hmm, how do you start writing a song (laughs) so (laughs) I, i mean it's it's a that's such a, a question with such a huge answer, but like I I think I started learning guitar because I and I'm you know in the very early stages of it, but partly because of listening to Dolly talk about her songwriting, and um, you know I am a singer even though I don't really sing anymore, and mm. yeah I think I would just ask her you know how do you you know when you wake up you know do, I I guess she would just say you you just start you just start. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I would ask her, I think I would ask her about song, s- songwriting and, and how do you, how do you start if, if you've never really done it or if you're scared, I'd love to hear her warm, loving answer. Cause I know it would be just. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder when she's writing a song, like when she wrote, I will always love you or Jolene or nine to five Mm. Or any of these amazing hits that she's had or written for other people. Like, I wonder at the end of writing that or as she's going, does she know she's on to a winner? Like sometimes when you're writing a, a bit of stand up. Yeah. You sort of have that feeling. You're like, oh, I think this this could be quite good. Or I think people like this. Um, Yeah, I wonder if she yeah. has that kind of instinct. That's such a good question. That would be such a good question to ask her. Ah, she's mm. just oh, w- what a brilliant guest, and and what a <laughs> a superb collection of people. You've got Jacques Pépin, Whoopi Goldberg, Maurice Lamarche, Orson Welles, and Dolly Parton. I mean, <laughs> at Dollywood. Ah, <laughs> oh, this is just <laughs> breathtaking stuff, Liz. One thing I love to ask people as well, and it's it's not necessarily something that I might have mentioned to you to consider, so this might be a little bit of an off-the-cuff one. But if you thought of like a a common thread, like is there a a quality that all of these guests have or uh, a universal reason that you're attracted to these 
people or personalities? Like, is there anything that you think runs through that group that you say, I've put together a group of people who are this or who exude this or make me feel this or think this? Is there any kind of common thread you think between mm-hmm. them? I think, I think a lot of it comes down to uh, daily passion for mm-hmm. the work. So whatever, anything that these people apply themselves to, there's that passion that they each have. You know, if if when I think about what Maurice was saying when I spoke to him about voiceover, when I think about you know, Whoopi Goldberg's trajectory um, from the one woman show all the way through till now. When I think about Jacques Pepin and and his journey with cooking, when I think about Orson and his journey with theater and, you know, recorded medium and Dolly and songs every day, it's that, that patent, that passion for the, for the day to day, I guess. Like there are all those big things that happen that I'm sure happen to all these people in their lives but it's like it's the small things that they would do daily that mm-hmm. ended up making their career. So mm. that for me is what I'm sort of looking at. I'm thinking, well, how do I spend my day today? What am I passionate about? Who are and this, you know, this podcast gave me a chance to think, well, who does inspire me and who what am I drawn to? What am I passionate about? So yeah, it, I think they all share they they share a passion for for the, the the daily work on what mm-hmm. you what you love, um, yeah. and sometimes you don't love. I mean, I'm sure all of them would be like, yeah. Sometimes it really sucks. Sometimes I don't want to write. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's but it's that passion that I guess keeps you coming back and and makes you curious. I think the curiosity. Yeah, oh God, yeah. Quality. I think those those two things, passion and curiosity. I think. Mm-hmm no matter what else is going on with a group of people, uh, so long as you've got a healthy dose of passion, a healthy dose of curiosity, yeah, you could never be bored for a second. I think they're oh, great yeah. qualities. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that That's a superb answer. Well, Liz, the only thing we now need to know is what you would be cooking for this group. The one thing you did mention to me when you said you were inviting Orson Welles mm. was that it would have to be a big meal. Yeah. So... <laughs> So I'm now, hoping that you've got some big plans for this menu. Well, I realize it might actually be a, a little bit too small because I've only gone for three courses. <laughs> <laughs> but I figure I would pad it out with a cocktail hour. And oh, then, yes. And then also, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, a, a cheese plate. <laughs> <laughs> a cheese plate. So... So I know that we started out saying that I've never cooked a Jacques Pepin recipe, but <gasps> because of that, I decided, and this is a big risk because he's going to be there. Wow. And I'm going to cook three courses all from Jacques Pepin's book. Oh my goodness. This is going from not to 60 in one second. This it's is amazing. Really, Connor, it's a really scary evening. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is brilliant. I'm sure Jacques would absolutely <laughs> love this. Yeah. Well, what are these three three courses? So the first course would be now this um this yields six first course servings. So there could be a lot of it. But 
you know, actually, no, because <laughs> we'll be six people. That's why I chose it. Anyway, maybe I'll double the recipe. In any case, <laughs> it is moule ravigote, which are is mussels ravigote, whatever mm. that is. And it's, uh, as I'm reading from the book, it's a, it's a standard at most good French bistros and brasseries and was a regular dish at um, one of the places that Jacques cooked. Um so it's mussels, white wine, mustard, red wine, vinegar, parsley. You know, it's, it's sort of like oh. what you would have with moule frites and that would be yeah. the first course. I thought, oh, especially I'm imagining it's going to be winter time in Dollywood. So something warming to begin Excellent. with. Excellent. Yes, I love um, that. And then the second course is something that... Uh, um, Apparently, Jacques Pepin served this classic quite often to the French president, Charles de Gaulle. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, why? No, no pressure. But I'd be, <laughs> do- <laughs> I'd be doing a roast leg of lamb Provençal. Um, oh. And that, yes, so that is a, a leg of lamb with lots of butter, uh, parsley, garlic, shallots, um, or as we say in the U.S., shallots. Um, <laughs> uh, some uh, a white bread, you know. So you'll have like a topping on the on the um, on the roast like a lamb. But the reason I chose mm-hmm. this is because apparently it's like a typical centerpiece for a Sunday lunch in France. Oh yeah. So I thought um, something rich, warming, but sort of family friendly. I like, like that. And I would yeah. think roast potatoes and and uh, and greens on the side just to to finish it out. Um, oh my goodness, that sounds yeah. amazing. Doing that. And then finally, uh, I would say the pièce de, de résistance, but I think it's more just the end of the meal. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, it would be Jacques Pepin's uh, apple tart, but it's called Memel's apple tart because it's the one that his mother used to make. And because I just thought, well, I'll I'll try to, even though maybe that's a bad choice. I'm like, hey, Jacques, I'm gonna make. He's gonna be like, this is terrible. <laughs> but it's basically it's an apple tart, and uh, apparently the dough is made in a very unusual and a, an unusual manner, or in a way that Jacques was trained exactly not to do it this way. Um, that's interesting. Um, but apparently it comes out tender, crumbly, and light in texture with a delicate taste. So it's oh. yeah, just apples, sugar, butter, and then, you know, you, you have your lovely crust and you make the, the apple tart. Now, for my part, and I hope this wouldn't be um, – I hope Jacques wouldn't be opposed to this, but I would like to try to make uh, homemade vanilla ice cream as well <gasps> to go with it. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. You are giving yourself quite a task with these. I mean, it's a lot. What, what a menu! What a fantastic <laughs> menu! And I, I definitely chose the wrong time just before dinner to hear it oh, because I'm so hungry now. <laughs> oh God, it's so alluring! It's amazing. <laughs> Sumptuous is absolutely the right yes. word to use. Oh, I'm so glad! I'm so glad. <laughs> we have- you know, we'd have wine and we'd have sherry afterward and things like that. I would, I would do that oh, because this is the name of the game. So, <laughs> oh, I could definitely see Orson Welles kicking back in a cozy chair. I'm so with glad a, sh- a sherry after dinner, feeling oh, very I'm, satisfied. 
so glad you said that because I or, Orson, I feel like, is the person I'm most worried about. And also, I, I think it's important to say one thing I thought about is I would be taking a risk having Maurice and Orson at the same table. But, but I feel like Orson would get a kick out of him doing an impression. Yes, it's always fun seeing <laughs> impressions given of the person in front of the person. Yeah. There's a superb video of uh, Peter Serafinowicz. Oh God, I love it. Doing oh, he's amazing. His Terry Wogan impression <laughs> done in front of Terry Wogan when he sat beside Terry Wogan, oh. and the absolute fear in Peter <laughs> Serafinowicz's eyes as he's about to do it, and then when he does it. Terry Wogan just breaks and he's just like, oh my God, that is so perfect. <laughs> it's I really terrific. So much. Oh, and Peter Serafinowicz, again, what an impressionist. Have you seen, I mean, his Michael Caine uh, impressions of the Michael Caine acting instructional videos? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have seen those. Oh, do yourself a favor and watch, uh, you know, a little <laughs> snippet of the original Michael Caine masterclass on screen acting. Okay. <laughs> Peter Serafinowicz's send up of it and it is perfect and oh, also wow. watch Michael Caine talking about people doing impressions of his voice that's all <laughs> that sounds like the perfect trilogy to so watch funny. together so I know Peter Serafinowicz's Alan Alda impression is just unreal I know Bill Hader does a really good Alan Alda but Bill Hader said in an interview that after he heard Peter Serafinowicz's Alan Alda he was just like, there's no point in even trying it anymore. Like, that is the one. No one's going to beat it. I'm going to have to listen to this because I watched I watched so much MASH as a kid. I love Alan Alda. Oh, so. Alan Alda is yeah. such a hero. And yeah, Peter Serafinowicz's Alan Alda is uncanny. Really, oh, really excellent. Uh, <laughs> Liz, this has been so, so much fun. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm so grateful. Uh, if our lovely listeners wanted to kind of stay across all things Liz, hear more from you and see you live on stage, where could they check out all of your great work? So I think I'm a little slim on the pickings online, but uh, my Instagram is at Liz Guterbach and my Twitter is also at Liz Guterbach. And when gigs are up and running again, I will be posting uh, when and where up there. And uh, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, we will add links to those accounts into the episode description. And we so love having you at Jericho Comedy. We really can't wait until our shows are back a bit more regularly and we can get you back performing with us again. Uh, it's always a treat to perform with you. Uh, Liz, thank you so, so much. And we'll speak again soon. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Connor. Thank you so Thanks, much. Bye. Bye. That was such a great dinner party. I particularly loved hearing about Liz's encounter with Maurice LaMarche. It doesn't often happen that guests on the show have been able to meet their heroes. So when it does happen, they're always just such brilliant stories. Thank you so, so much to Liz for taking the time to think about that so much and to chat with me about it. And for goodness sake, Liz, seize the day. Think how happy Jacques Pepin would be if you made any of his dishes. you got to check out Liz's brilliant work online. We've added links into the episode description for her Instagram and Twitter accounts. So head over to those to get more of the Liz Guterbach experience. I know I say it every week, but I just love these conversations. I really hope you're enjoying the series as much as I am. 
You can check back over previous episodes. I've spoken to a brilliant range of people. Comedians, mental health campaigners, impressionists, writers, political cartoonists, composers, astrophysicists, and more. If you're enjoying the podcast, a little review or share can make the world of difference in our ability to reach a wider audience, which we would really love to do. So if you do that, we'd be ever so grateful. The Dinner Party is a Jericho comedy production. If you want to hear any more from me, you can visit www.connormcreynolds.com and have a look and listen to some of my other radio, podcast, writing and comedy work. I'll be back next week with the absolutely incredible Daniel Niels Roberts chatting all about his dream dinner party. But until then, thank you so much for listening and bye-bye. Thank you.